so this idea of micromanaging my orgasm definitely kept me out of my body and um, and more into my head. And so what I had to do was kind of let the, the orgasm go. Like I, I had to stop seeing orgasm as the reason for sex. Because for me, that's what I, that was my understanding of it. Like that was the whole reason why people had sex was to have the orgasm. And so I started to think about like, what would it look like to take orgasm out of the equation and just just be in the moment with my partner and to just feel the sensations in my body that I'm feeling and just saying, you know, if an orgasm happens, cool. If it doesn't happen, that's cool too, because ultimately orgasm isn't the goal. It's a bonus, but the goal is for connection. That was Evian Whitney, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 91. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. On this show, my guests and I are committed to one thing and one thing only, telling the truth about our lives. No one's trying to sell you anything. I promise that no one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life by offering a 10-day, six-step life hack plan for anything. I'm so over that, and I bet you are too. Life is complicated and messy and painful and beautiful, and we deserve more than a bunch of life hacking tips. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others, and we dive deep into topics like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, courage, change, and everything in between that makes up life. This is an adult podcast covering adult subjects, which means that you can often expect to hear adult language, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way. With this mission in mind, you also won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. The show is 100% listener funded, which means that we have complete freedom from corporate or outside influence. Awesome, right? Instead, these honest conversations are made possible by people like you who give $8 or more per eight episode season. If you're already supporting the show, thank you. Thank you so much. And if you haven't joined our support squad yet, here's where I invite you in and ask for your help. I believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And when you help fund this show, you're voting for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a truly diverse group of people, the vast majority of whom are women. When you support this show, you are saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off-limits due to fear or shame. This is a show by truth tellers for truth tellers. And if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. As a big thank you, you'll get access to over 30 hours of bonus content with new fun stuff added every month, as well as our community discussion page, our virtual book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series where I talk about my real life in real time and more. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Your support means everything to me. It truly does. And it's what will allow me to continue making new episodes for you as we join together to build a kinder, more open, and more truth-filled world. And now let's dive right into today's episode. 
Today, you'll get to meet Evian Whitney. Evian is a writer, sensualist, and sexuality doula, a person who helps facilitate, educate, and hold space for women who are seeking to come into the full expression of their erotic selves. When she's not writing or taking sexy selfies on Instagram, she's helping women step out of sexual shame and into their erotic power via one-on-one coaching and intimacy counseling. She's also the host of the Sexually Liberated Woman podcast, which is an ongoing sex-positive dialogue that highlights, celebrates, and encourages the sexually liberated woman. In this episode, Evian shares her story of sexual liberation, how she moved from sexual trauma and dysfunction into a place of healing, power, and freedom. We discuss what we were both taught about sex as young girls, and how often female sexuality is seen as something that only exists for male pleasure. She talks about the role of masturbation and of taking sexy selfies in her journey and about the surprisingly political act of choosing to take up space in the world as a sexual being. This conversation was incredibly affirming for me, and I hope that you too enjoy getting to know Evian and hearing her stories about sex, love, and liberation. All of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all of the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we are good to go. Evian, welcome to the show. Yay, thanks so much for having me. It's so good to like talk to you. It's been a long time. <laughs> I was trying to do the time math this morning in my head, and I actually don't remember when the last time, I mean, the last time that I saw you, I was living in LA for sure. Uh-huh. But I think it was like multiple LA's ago. Like I lived in that area. Like I feel like last time I saw you was when I was still the director of that day camp. I mean, it was like 2009 ish. I was a long time. So I saw you very briefly. I don't know if you remember this, but I saw you very, very briefly at WDS a few years ago. Yep. Very, very briefly. You were like in the bathroom, the line of the bathroom. And I was like, that girl looks familiar. And I was like, that couldn't be, I don't know. I just, I just couldn't, I didn't put the the pieces together. And then you like, I think we had a quick exchange and you went to the bathroom and I never saw you again after that. Cause I mean, WDS is a whirlwind, but, um, but yeah, I can't even remember when that was. So that was and 2012. It, yeah. 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 And, but before that, my God, I can't even remember the last time, um, I, I saw you. Was it Bloggers in Sin City? Probably. I know. That's, oh my God. For, for people listening, Bloggers in Sin City is an event that I, so this was back in my drinking days, back before sobriety. Uh, basically, a to be fair, it was a lot of fun. It was um, an event. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> right? Like it was an event in Vegas where like a bunch of bloggers just kind of came together and had, I don't know, like a multi-day party slash like friendship BFF, like online best friend bonding situation. Um, yeah, I did that for five years. You were at the very first one. I was, I was at the first one. I want to say I went to the second one or yeah, I think I went to the second one and then I don't know what happened. I just sort of fell off fell off the face of the internet for a little bit. Well, both of us have gone through significant changes in the time between. This is kind of like a where are they now episode for us. I know. (laughs) So true. So funny. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And now here we are that we both live in Oregon. So there you go. You never know. Wild. So wild. So of everything that you have done so far in 2017, what's been one of the most fun things? Ooh, that is a very good question. Um, let me think about this for a moment. Mm. 
So a couple things come to mind. One is that I launched a, uh, a zine, like a physical uh, copy or a, a physical uh, magazine, mini zine, um, with a collaborator. Um, she and I did some work together and we launched a zine, which was so fun. All of the work that I do is digital. So I was really, really stoked on being able to do something that uh, I could actually hold in my hands. Um, and that was really fun. I really, really enjoyed that. Um, the other thing that I'm like super stoked about is that like my coaching practice, I do sexual liberation coaching. I am like filled to capacity right now. And every single one of my clients is a woman of color. And I love that. I love that so much because um, the work that I do is so important to me, but it's also very important that I'm able to give back to my community and, and to help my community through a lot of intergenerational traumas um, that were given to them via racism and sexism and all these things. So um, I can't believe it's already May because it literally feels like on this, like on one hand, it feels like it's only like I'm in February, but on the other, it's like, I feel like this year has already been so, so long and so full. I've already done so much. And um, yeah, it's it's been wild. <laughs> it's been a wild year already. Yeah, that's all so, I mean, wonderful to hear. I love hearing, I mean, especially women, talk about the good things that are going on, especially when it comes to like work or creative work, I feel like the sort of trend towards like vulnerability and authenticity, like which obviously is great. And I know we both believe in tends to like focus just on the stuff that's not going well, right? That in order Mm -hmm. to like be vulnerable, you have to be talking about like the hard things, which sure, true. But I find that oftentimes, especially with my female friends, there's like a hesitancy to say, like, I created this and I'm really proud of it. Like I'm sold out in my coaching practice. Like there, there's just something, yeah. it sounds simple, but I find that there's like a lot of power in, in like, even just what you just said. Yeah. Or even just saying like straight up, I have made a lot of money this year, you know, like I, I never have those conversations with people. And, um, and I never hear my own friends or my own colleagues talk about, the pride that they feel that they are a self-sustaining, they have a self-sustaining business. You know, um, the fact that I even have a business honestly blows my mind every single day because this is not the path that I thought that I was going to be taking with my life. I really, I mean, I had no idea what I was going to do, but I'm fairly certain that I wasn't even thinking that I was going to be doing this. Um, so just the, the fact that I, I make money doing this and I'm successful at it. Um, it's, it. it's something that really just fuels me every day, especially when I've had some kind of dark periods where the work isn't coming super easily for me or, you know, dealing with like mental health issues and things like that. Like sometimes just celebrating the fact that like me being here is kind of a miracle and me doing this work is pretty badass. Like, I don't know. I just, I I wish people talked about it a little bit more. Yeah. Well, and that was going to be something that I asked you, um, like what's something that you wish that people were more open and honest about. So, and I'm sure there's lots of things, but yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely the money piece, definitely bragging on yourself and like, you know, taking up space in that way and being like, I'm a boss, like I'm a boss ass bitch because I did this today. You know, um, I think sometimes, especially as women, we can, shrink ourselves and, and put ourselves in these like little small 
boxes that are very dainty and pretty. And, you know, we could sort of compartmentalize ourselves. Like we don't allow ourselves to be the full expression of who we are. And um, this year I'm trying to work more on just owning it and, you know, kind of being a little, uh, I don't want to say unladylike, but like, you know, just this idea that, that I was taught that, you know, you're not supposed to brag, you're supposed to be modest, you're not supposed to show very much skin, you know, like I'm, I'm really sort of like throwing all of that out of the window and just playing with what it looks like to take up space. Mm, oh my gosh, this is okay. So the tip of the iceberg of the million thousand eleven hundred things I want to talk to you about. Um, so but I thought a good place to start because I know that your beautiful website sex love liberation was first created so that you could have a place to chronicle your own journey and you know, talk about sexual healing and awakening and all of that. So I thought that we could start with you telling sort of the story of that journey taking us maybe from who you and your sexuality were when you began this work to kind of where you are today. I feel like that story, uh, you know, or as much as, as you want to share is I think a good kind of foundation on which to talk about a bunch of other stuff. Oh, totally. Yeah. And it's so funny, like as I have been kind of preparing to have this conversation with you, I've been thinking about kind of like timestamps, like when I knew you and, you know, the bloggers in Sin City age, like where I was in my sexual liberation journey at that time. And gosh, I mean, what was that? When when was the first Bloggers in Sin City? Was it that two thousand nine? Summer two thousand nine. Yep. Okay. So so I would say about that time, maybe a little before then, I was you know newly married. I was um, living in LA and just really trying to find my way in this new like era in my life, like being out of the house for the first time, being in a a committed relationship, a healthy committed relationship for the first time, um, and being thrust into the adult world, it felt, you know, very like fast and furious in that way. And I noticed that like one of the things that I was having a lot of trouble with at that time was this idea of being an, an adult sexual, uh, woman. I, up until that point, I was the, the kind of sex that I was having and, and my idea of my own sexuality was really based on the things that I was taught in adolescence. So, uh, the experiences that I had really like at that time really shaped who I was and kind of distorted my ideas about sex and love and relationships. Um, cause the relationship that I was in prior before I met my husband, Jonathan, um, you know, it, it wasn't a, it was a good relationship at the time, but like, as I grew and I realized, you know, what was going on, I realized that, wow, I was sexually abused and, um, perhaps even raped and, you know, waking up to that concept and, and realizing that maybe that's where a lot of my sexual baggage uh, was coming from was really, really brutal. So at the time when I met you and, um, you know, we were talking and stuff like that, like I was really in the thick of it. Like I was really trying to find my way through this, uh, murky territory for me, which was who am I as a sexual being? And, you know, my relationship 
you're having some really difficult um, times with that aspect. Like we weren't having sex very often because I was being triggered every time I had sex. I was sort of having flashbacks of what I didn't realize at the time was these um, experiences that I'd had with my ex-boyfriend. I just thought that there was something wrong with me. I thought that, you know, for whatever reason, my body just shut down and wasn't able to um, wasn't able to open up uh, in a very like literal and figurative sense when it came to sex. Um, and I was also dealing with a lot of anxiety, um, a lot of depression at that time. So, um, it was a really, really difficult time and I wasn't really quite sure what to do because, uh, you know, sex is one of those things where we live in a sex saturated world, but it's also very sex negative. So on the one hand you have sex everywhere and it's, it's sex is normalized in our culture to be something that, or to be seen that something uh, or as something that everyone does and everyone has the hang of it and everyone's enjoying it. But on the same hand, sex is, um, sex is private. It's taboo. It's not something that you should talk about, particularly if you're having issues with it. And funnily enough, I remember, um, I remember, I think it was the second bloggers in Sin City, I think, I don't remember, this is this was ages ago. It feels like lifetimes ago, but I remember, um, I think you were giving away sex toys, like you had a sex toy sponsor. Um, yeah, I think we, I got, we worked with a fun company that was like, here, we have all these cool things. Like, do you want yeah. these things? And I was like, probably we want these things. Sure, why not? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think I actually, I think I uh, I want a Wee Vibe from you, which I was like so stoked about. I'm like, wow, I got a, I got a Wee Vibe. And it made me feel so adult and so badass. But, um, but I remember there's a lot of talk and a lot of, especially in Vegas. I mean, sex is everywhere in Vegas. And I remember just being on that trip, seeing all of these sex toys, watching my roommates at the time, like having these conversations about sex and, and things like that. And I just felt so kind of like disconnected from it Mm -hmm. in a way that I didn't quite like actually realize until a lot later. So, um, so fast forward a few, a few years, I have moved to, I've moved to Oregon and kind of like ditched my old or was in the process of ditching my old blog. I had a fashion blog that I um, was writing, which was also sort of a personal diary of mine. And um, I was in this process of thinking about other things that I wanted to do with my life and, you know, kind of existential crisis of like, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up, but I, you know, but I know that I need to be doing something and I was writing a lot um, and thinking a lot about this whole sex thing and how painful it was for me and my relationship and just wanting to find answers. And funnily enough, I got approached by a friend of mine at the time who was a sex journalist, and she was doing this series on uh, on her website uh, that was like celebrating women in pornography. And she was asking me to like, pen a few essays about my personal experiences and opinions on women in porn. 
And I was so excited about that. It sounded like right up my alley because I was already in the space of wanting to talk more about sex and wanting to like go through this process of sexual healing. And I wanted an outlet for that, but I didn't feel super comfortable putting it on my personal diary that my mom also read. (laughs) So, um, so I, I was talking to Jonathan about it. I told him that, um, I was interested in continuing to follow this thread of, of sexual exploration through the series, which I felt was sort of the universe's way of being like, go in this direction, keep, keep searching, keep figuring it out. And, um, you know, Jonathan made the suggestion that rather than putting it on my personal blog, I should house the series on, um, on a new website. And so he just very flippantly was like, maybe we should call it like sex love or liberation or something like that. And I was like, done, let's do it. And so like within four days we created the blog. It was, um, it was a very quick and dirty website design. And I housed the essays there. I wrote three essays for, um, for the series. And from there, I just, I, I was so curious and I was so intrigued by, this, this topic, I wanted to learn more about it, but I particularly wanted to learn more about how my hangups and my baggage could potentially be healed and released through chronicling my journey. So that's basically how I started Sex Love Liberation. It wasn't because I wanted to have a blog where I'm helping people become sexually liberated. Like I literally was like, I really want to write some essays about masturbation and pornography. I don't have another place to put it here. Let me just create a new blog. And then it just kind of like expanded from there and like grew from there. Do you remember, other than that series of essays, what was the first topic that you wrote about? Um, so not on not on that blog. Um, of like way, way, like maybe a few years before I even created the blog, one of the first essays that I ever wrote was about uh, my sexual dysfunction in my marriage, and that was on. Um, on my old blog, which was called Apricot Tea, which shout out if you remember my blog. Um, <laughs> I do. I remember. Yeah. 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 So, um, so that was like the first time that I ever wrote about, uh, the, the trouble that I was having with sex and the way that the way that I was taught about sex and how that was really kind of fucking with my ability to have sex now as an adult. And I remember writing that from this place of just like, total frustration. Like I didn't know what else to do, where else to turn. And I wrote it and I pressed publish and, oh my gosh, that was like one of the most popular, uh, posts that I'd ever written on my blog at the time. Um, I got so many comments and so many emails from women who was saying to me, that is me. Like the way that you just described your upbringing, the way that you just described your aversion to sex. I think the thing that I said in the essay was like, if I were if I were to choose, if someone were to ask me if I, if I were to choose between having a piece of chocolate cake or having sex, I would always pick chocolate cake because I'm not like, I don't really like sex. I don't really understand sex. I'm not good at it. And a lot of women came up to me and said that like, that's me. I would much rather choose chocolate cake too. And I think from that essay and being that vulnerable, I realized like that was the first kind of inkling that I got that, um, not only that, I had some serious work that I needed to do on myself, but also that I wasn't alone and that there was something about this topic 
about sex and sexual self-discovery that um, that resonated with people. And I was very curious about what further what further exploration and, and uncovering would look like. So that was like one of the one of the first things that I ever wrote about my sex life. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's, I know that we're going to dig into all these things, but there's something that feels like profoundly true about what you said. Um, I don't remember the exact wording, but something about like how oversaturated with sex, like our Mm -hmm. society culture is on one hand, on the other hand, like we're not having these conversations. Right. And I think even to, for me to think back on like what I learned or was taught about sex growing up, like it was all very like secondhand, right? Like Mm -hmm. I'm not necessarily talking about like sex ed, which I mean has its own like range of problems. Right. But that like, I just, it wasn't discussed. Like if I go back and to think of, wow, something that I wish that people, you know, would have had honest conversations with me about, like, this is very much at the top of the list. Like it's, it's not even, I think that I learned necessarily outright anything damaging. It was just like the absence of honest conversations around this led to sort of filling in the blanks with like pop culture stuff, which is Mm -hmm. often pretty damaging. Yeah. Yeah. That was, um, that was very similar to my own upbringing too. Like I learned everything that I knew about sex secondhand as well, like through my, my girlfriends at the time who were, I mean, just as stupid and ill-informed as I was, you know, but I mean, we had nowhere else to go. And especially because I was raised in a Christian, very Christian and religious household, I didn't feel like I could freely talk about this or ask questions about this. Like one thing that like, blew my mind later in life was I realized that I never had any conversations about consent. Um, not until I was much, much older and I was already in a consensual relationship. And the the very fact that, you know, I had conversations about and and read articles about how to give an amazing blowjob when I was like 15, 16, 17 years old. And I was having conversations about, you know, what it, what it feels like to be, to have someone go down on you. And, um, you know, all of these like parts and little snippets of sexuality, but we never, like, I never had a conversation about consent. Like that is really fucked up. And, and, and it makes a lot of sense why I had so many hangups and issues and, and why my, uh, why the previous relationship that I had had so many problems because if I would have been given that conversation, if, if someone would have sat down with me and said like, okay, so sure, you, you should have sex when you're married, you should wait, but in case you don't, here are some things that you should know about consent. Here are some things that you should know about your, about your autonomy as a sexual person and your ability to be able to say no. And here are some things that you should maybe look out for that might look like sexual abuse, that might look like rape, that might look like coercion. Like if someone would have just sat down and talked to me about these things, like I don't think I would have been nearly as fucked up um, about sex as I was. But, you know, it's, it's so dangerous when as a culture we don't talk about something and especially as young, young girls, we're basically thrust into the situation of having to figure it out for ourselves by getting like sort of cherry picking the information that we get. And for me, the information that I got was through like reading Cosmo Girl and talking to my talking to my friends in high school who had boyfriends who were sexually experienced and were probably 
um, not in their right mind in terms of, you know, in terms of knowing what good, healthy sex looked like. Yeah. I mean, so I think this is an interesting thing to, to get more specific on, you know, kind of digging into maybe what we did wind up unconsciously, you know, or subconsciously believing about sex, like from all that messaging, because I'm it's it's hard to go back to like, what did I think when I was 12? Or, you know, whatever, because our memories Mm -hmm. are faulty. But, you know, I feel like a lot of what I learned, and again, no one ever sat me down with the like, here's, you know, this 101, whatever. But I think what I came to believe is that, how do I even I I don't know that I've ever articulated this before, that you know, so much of like the Cosmo, all that's like how to please men, right? Like, and obviously like I'm talking about this from, you know, like heterosexual media standpoint, right? That like Mm -hmm. so much of it was, you know, about that and about like women's sexuality at like through the male gaze or like as Mm -hmm. like a tool for something. It's either like on one hand, it was like, women are manipulative with sex on the other hand it's like this is how to like keep a man or like there was it was all like none of it was from a place of like being liberated and empowered as a woman first it was all like sex in relation to men do you understand what I'm saying maybe I'm not yeah Yeah. no no no, absolutely I'm right there 100% with you because I also realized that like no one ever taught me that I was a sexual being individually by myself I was raised with this notion that I am not a sexual being unless a man activates that sexuality within me. And that's really dangerous because that what that says and, and what that said to me was that the only way that I am sexual is if a man is able to bring that out of me. Otherwise, I'm not sexual at all. Otherwise, I don't have any uh, reason to think about this. I don't have any reason to explore it. If I'm in a relationship, particularly a relationship with a man, um, that is the only way that I'm able to function and explore and actualize my sexuality. And there is this idea of, of women, of, of sex for women being like a, like an exchange, like a, uh, like a transaction, like you get, you get, he gets sex out of you. And in exchange, you get companionship, you get loyalty, you get, um, I don't know, intimacy, whatever. I mean, that's how it was for me. So like when I was in relationships with boys as a young girl, I figured that sex was the way that you not only showed love for someone, but also the sense of devotion, mm-hmm. um, and a sense of ownership too. That was something that was pretty heavy on my mind that like, you know, especially because of the whole fucked up notion of like uh, virginity <laughs> and how like you give your virginity to someone, someone takes your virginity. I mean, just the language around that is so, um, it's so interesting, you know, and this idea that if I give my virginity to someone, he now owns me, he now owns a piece of me. I actually remember, this is so funny. I can't believe I'm even remembering this, but I used to go to church camps a lot when I was a kid. And I think I was, oh man, I was probably like maybe, maybe 14, 15 years old. I don't think I was with my boyfriend at the time. Me and my ex got together super, super young. But um, we were at church camp, and and part of church camp is like, you do fun things, and like, 
swing on tire swings. And then interweaved within that is like church and scriptures and lessons and things like that. So it was like all under the guise of like, oh no, this is summer camp. But like we were totally being like indoctrinated, you know? Um, And so there was like these workshops that would sort of break up in the day. So like after we did I don't know, basket weaving and had a ball with that. They'd be like, Oh, you know, here's a workshop that your, your, uh, your uh, leader wants to, to give you. And I remember there was one workshop that was just for girls and we were like segmented, like separated girls versus boys. And the girls went in one direction, the guys went in one, another direction and we were doing crafts. And I was so excited. Cause I was like, that's the whole reason why I want to go to camp. Like I want to make shit. I want to swing from trees. I want to like throw water balloons. And so I was excited about this workshop. And so we, I don't remember exactly what it was, but I remember that we had two pieces of construction paper and we were asked to put a bunch of glue and like glitter and all of this stuff on one side. And then on another side, we were supposed to like stick a piece of paper, um, and attach it. So basically it was like two pieces of paper glued together. And Um, and the lesson, oh, and then like, we were asked to like pull those pieces of paper. Well, wait, we were, we were asked to like, just let it sit. We were, it was supposed to sit for like 30 minutes because the glue had to dry. And then at the end we were asked to pull that piece, piece of paper apart. And basically the lesson was that, see, this is why you need to be careful about your virginity, because just like these two pieces of paper, when you pull them apart, there will always be a little piece of the other paper enmeshed into the the first paper. Like you'll never be able to separate them apart. And essentially that was sort of like a metaphor for why you should not have sex until you're married, because if you want those remaining pieces to be like on you, that's going to represent your husband. That's going to be more of a, more of a, um, a good thing to do. But if it's just some random dude, like you don't want tidbits of him. Like it was so bizarre. And so like, that was like, that was like the thing that I was raised in. I was all, I also signed purity contracts. Like I signed two purity contracts. Um, one, when I was like eight and another, when I was 13. So like, just having those things be sort of the, the, the foundation of, of what sex was for me and, and seeing it on like, on one hand, it was very medical. It was very like penis, vagina. This is what happens when those two things together, get together, you create a baby. And then on the other hand, it's like, Oh, sex is bad. You don't want to have sex, but it feels so good, but you don't want to have it. It's just like, it was, it's such a clusterfuck. Yeah. I mean, the, the contradictory messages were a really big one for me. This, like what you mentioned before, you know, the, that women are often either taught or exposed to this sort of transactional nature, right? Like Mm -hmm. I give sex in exchange for, you know, whatever those things. So like on one hand, there's the whole, you know, uh, not to throw Cosmo under the bus, but maybe, you know, like you, we, that's a stand in for, you know, a lot of other types of media also like there's right. the, you know, this is all, these are all the things that you have to do. This is how you have to look. This is like how waxed you have to be or all these in order to like keep uh, you know, a man. Right. And then, on, but on the other hand, like, well, but don't like sex too much and don't be too sexual. And don't, like, it's too, it's too conflicting. Like it's too much how anyone, like, so I, I hear you. It's, it's a yeah, lot. And, it, and it's wild to navigate that. Like you don't, it's, and especially when you're 
hormones are racing as a teenager and you see all of these cuties. And I mean, especially when you're at summer camp, like no one was interested in doing these Bible study things. Like they were trying to make out with boys and girls like in, in the forest, you know what I mean? So it was this really strange, strange way of, of being entered into the world of sex. And then, you know, what's really interesting is that you have this clusterfuck of contradiction, of taboo, of fear, of shame and blame. And then all of a sudden, like magically, when you get married, or at least when you become an adult, whatever that looks like, you're supposed to have it all figured out. Like on your wedding day, you are supposed to be like busting it wide open for your husband and you're able to achieve multiple orgasms. Like that never really made sense to me. This idea that you, that sex was this, this shameful taboo thing that was totally off limits. And then magically on your wedding night, you are supposed to be able to service every single need of your husband's and have a sense of sexual confidence and sexual intelligence that just isn't there. And I think that's what made my, uh, my relationship so, so tumultuous with sex is that there's a, there was a lot, even though I was an adult and even though I was in a loving and consensual and healthy relationship, I was still coming, coming at it from this place of taboo and, you know, fear and shame and blame because, you know, I was an adult and now all of a sudden I'm supposed to have all of those things figured out. Like there was no, there was no like stage or like sort of process into that. Mm -hmm. Um, so I kind of felt like I, I don't know, in a lot of ways, I sort of feel like I was a late bloomer. Um, even though I had sex really, really young in, in terms of having an, an erotic identity, like having a sexual identity. I mean, I don't really think that I had that until I was in, gosh, my mid twenties, you know, because I, I, I just didn't have a really good transition from the old, young, you know, naive purity kind of things into adulthood and having to, you know, figure all that stuff out. It's interesting to hear you say that you feel like you're a late bloomer with having an erotic identity, because I think this is something that uh, plenty of folks go their whole lives without digging into the way that you have. Right. So I think. Yeah. 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 It's it's true. And I mean, and that's so evident um, based on the work that that I've been doing. I mean, I, I work with women like in my private practice. Um, I was. <laughs> I, I thought originally that I was going to be working with people who were in their between like twenties and maybe thirties, maybe. But I was I was assuming that you know because I had 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 such a uh, horrible experience or at least just a really messed up experience about sex um, that I don't know maybe other people had the same sort of upbringing, but only when they were young. And it was such a it was such a humbling experience to realize that, I mean, I've had clients who are in their fifties who don't know where their clitoris is. So like, and that's not to shame them. That's not to blame them. It's just like, it's, it was just crazy for me to see that, um, to see that it's not about age, you know, like we're all, we're, we've all been fed this, um, these lies and these falsehoods and the shame around our bodies, around sex, around, um, uh, around, you know, being, uh, someone who can be autonomous with their body and, and with their needs. Like, it's not something that's just segmented to the youngins as I, as I sure. thought. 
So when you started to follow your curiosity about this more and head sort of down this path of, you know, sexual healing and liberation, I'd love to hear some specifics of what did you actually do? Like, what did that look like? Mm, So the first, because like, you know, I didn't really have uh, people in my life at the time who were educating me and things like that. I literally had to forge my own path and like educate myself. So I was reading a lot of books. Um, Mostly what I was curious about were the people who were able to have sex and have sexual identities that weren't full of shame, that weren't broken, that weren't dysfunctional. And I remember um, being turned on to uh, the writer Anais Nin, who wrote, you know, all kinds of beautiful things. I mean, she's, she's more so popular because she was a diarist. Like she wrote just amazing, amazing volumes of diary. I mean, she kept a diary, I think from the time she was 13 until she, she died. And so she had all of her diary entries, um, made into books. And I was really fascinated by her story because her story was of sexual awakening. And she very, very boldly and courageously talked about, her sexual awakening and her sexual desires and the things that she was curious about. And that really, that was really cool for me because I didn't really have, um, I didn't really have like inspiration at that point. I didn't really know what a healthy non-dysfunctional sex life or sexual identity looked like. So um, really kind of immersing myself in as much sex positivity as possible was incredibly healthy um, and helpful um, and then, you know, just having having some really hard conversations with myself about the ways that uh, I needed some serious sexual healing, like on a professional level, like getting into therapy, talking about um, how the way that I was raised and then the previous relationship that I was in informed um my own traumas around sex and my own, uh, falsehoods about sex. So like, those were the two major, major points for me. And throughout that, just maintaining a, uh, a state of just curiosity, just wanting to know more, wanting to know more about my body, wanting to know more about what sexual liberation even meant. I mean, I didn't even know that sexual liberation was a thing. Like no one talked about that with me. No one talked to me about sexuality. It was only about this particular act. And so being able to see that sex is more than penis and vagina sex, like there, there is, it's, it's bigger than that. You know, when we talk about sexual identity and orientation and, um, you know, all of these other things that it's, that's, that's within this, um, just being able to see that it was bigger than that and that there was more layers to kind of work through. I mean, I, I sort of geeked out about it cause it was just, it was very interesting to me. I was sort of giving myself the education and the permission to explore that I didn't have, um, throughout my entire life up until that point. So that term sexual liberation, how do you define that? What does that mean to you? Oh, um, so sexual liberation to me, basically means, you know, it means this idea of sexual freedom. So that can mean, um, you know, someone who, I feel like I'm tripping over my words. It's it's such a big, it's such a big thing for me. Um, so sexual liberation for me means this idea of sexual freedom, being able to be 
who you are as a sexual person, whatever that looks like, um, and being able to stand in the truth of that sexual um, expression, whatever that looks like. And also sexual liberation looks like being able to explore, um, be curious about who you are as a sexual being, because I think because of the way that we have been taught and, and the way that um, culture, media, paint sex, we don't really have those conversations. Like we don't really sit down and think about who am I as a sexual being? What are my sexual needs? What turns me on? You know, like we're kind of fed this, this notion that one size fits all, like what gets her off will get me off. And it's, it's sort of like across the board. Um, but that's not true. You know, I think, I think sexual liberation is about really knowing and understanding who you are as a sexual being and giving yourself permission to pursue that and explore that, whatever that looks like. Yeah. So much of what I'm hearing you say comes down to the difference between like, not the difference, but sort of between being and doing, right? It's so easy mm-hmm. to think of sex as like, this is just this thing that we do for, you know, however long it lasts and then compartmentalize, go on with like the rest of your life that that has nothing to do with. And, right. you know, like this idea of being a sexual being and like that it's not only bringing your full self to that activity, but then like that it's not just, you know, these 20 minutes or whatever it is, like that it's more integrated than that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's more holistic. Like it, it, it's, it's, part of you as a whole. It's not just a particular act that is done in the bedroom, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in, you know, this sort of idea that you have brought up about overcoming like the shame and guilt, right? Are the things that we have been taught when it comes to sex for you personally, what was sort of the stickiest thing to overcome? Hmm. Oh my gosh, there's so many. It doesn't <laughs> just have to be so, one, but so you can many. listen. We can be here. You can give me all of them. <laughs> um, well, I mean, definitely, we kind of talked about this earlier, but this idea that sex is transactional, like um, that it's not so much about my pleasure, it's about his pleasure. That was huge for me. Um, that was the one that I really needed to challenge the most because almost everything in media, uh, like, supports that notion. Like when I think about the, the sex scenes that I see in, and that I've seen in film, um, I can, I feel like I'm a pretty intuitive person and I can always tell when like the woman just isn't really feeling it. Like she's just not having a good time. And so for me seeing those sex scenes and growing up seeing those sex scenes and seeing them sort of in this one-sided way, it just only, it it only supported this idea more that sex is for men's pleasure. It's not for me. Like I am just a hole to be filled and somehow, some way there's pleasure in that. I mean, when I was a kid, I used, or not a kid, when I was a young adult, I used to think that uh, because of this, this, this notion that you know, sex is for the men's pleasure and not for the women. I used to think that women derived and got pleasure from sex from how much noise they were making. So I would make a lot of noise. I would scream, I would moan, I would, I would say all these things with this understanding that the more that I said that, the more that I vocalized, somehow some way pleasure would sort of show up and I would have an orgasm. And that's like really, that's like really silly for me to think about now, but, um, but it all kind of stems from 
what I was seeing, what I was observing and what was kind of indirectly um, taught to me at the time. Just this idea that, that, you know, you are, you are for a man's pleasure and, you know, uh, like this isn't for you necessarily, you know? Absolutely. Well, even in regard to, you know, the idea of faking orgasms, right. Or that like this, I don't even know when I came to believe like, well, this is just something that you do as a woman to like, have it be over. So you can like move on with the rest of your night or whatever. Like, Oh my God. (laughs) No one ever said that to me, but that came from somewhere. Right. That it's like, it's, it was almost like, I feel like I, how do I, what am I saying? I feel like I was taught to value like that my role in sex was like performance, right? That like goes into what you were saying about like making the noises and like that it's Mm -hmm. like, I'm a part of this performance. And like, if I like play my part well, then like this person will want to be with me, but like then, but it's, it's never about me. And it's like, this is like a huge thing to unlearn. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This idea that, that sex is performative and particularly performative for the male gaze and for, for male pleasure, which is so, it's so messed up, you know? Um, and, and that was definitely, Oh my God, the whole faking orgasm thing. Like that was another hard thing that I had to unlearn because I didn't realize it, but like, I was faking my orgasms constantly. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, I, I wasn't actually having orgasms. And I thought that it was, you know, in our, in our culture, I hear it all the time, fake it till you make it. And I, I literally thought like, well, if I fake enough orgasms, maybe eventually my body will be trained to see this act and, and to feel these sensations as pleasurable, you know? So, um, so yeah, I faked a lot of orgasms. It got to the point where I had to make a pact with myself and with my husband to say like, I am not going to fake orgasms anymore. Um, and I'm going to find a way either to have those orgasms or be okay with the fact that I don't have them, you know, because it's not the end of the world if I don't have an orgasm, you know? Yeah. The, uh, the faking orgasms for me intersects a lot with like sort of a part of femininity that I feel like I was taught or like what it means to play a feminine role that women are responsible for like protecting the egos of men sort of. Oh my God. Yes. Like (laughs) we're just going to go there. We're going to talk about all the things. Yeah. And so that that's right. Like that if I believed that if I was not having an orgasm during sex, that like that wasn't something I could be open about because then he's going to feel bad. And that's my responsibility, which like saying that now, like makes me feel like I want to go back to that younger version of myself (laughs) and just like hug her. And like, it just, yeah. But I mean, you know, like, I, I know we're shitting on cosmopolitan, but I just, we have to like, we have honestly, to. you know, like for me, cosmopolitan magazine was the only window that I got into sexuality. I didn't have anything like, I didn't see, I didn't see my first porn, like my actual first porn through for the intention of, of watching it for sexual pleasure until God, I was probably like 19 or 20 before that. Like the only concept of sex I had was, um, was looking at cosmopolitan articles. I don't even know why my mom allowed me to read that magazine because like on the one hand she was so preaching this notion of purity and being chaste and saving yourself into marriage. But for whatever reason, I was reading Cosmo girl about how to, you know, 
suck his cock in a way that it's like the lollipop technique. Like, how did I know those things? You know what I mean? But, um, but, oh, but yeah, girl. like, but like it, that sort of feeds into it, right? Like, you know, all of those magazine articles that I was reading at the time, they weren't like how to give yourself an orgasm, right? Like it was like how to knock his socks off in bed in 90 seconds or less. <laughs> like it wasn't about my pleasure. It was yeah. about his pleasure. And that's just like, ah, as now, we t- like, I was just going to say now, like, just like you, when I think about the things that I was, you know, uh, learning and hearing, I want to go back in time and be like, don't read this shit. Like, it's not good for you. It's not real. Like, this is, this is perform performance. This is a fantasy, but this isn't healthy. Yeah, I agree. I, something that's coming up for me, I was going to say out of nowhere, but not out of nowhere, very much out of the conversation that we're having is, um, when I quit drinking, I mean, obviously that was a pivotal thing for me just in terms of like learning how to be an adult, right. And like feel your feelings. And I had never been an adult without alcohol before. And part of what came up for me was around like the intersection of alcohol and sex. Like I had Mm. never, I mean, I had had sex sober, but I had never, I hadn't had sex. Like drinking and sex were very linked for me. Like they both sort of started at the same time in my life. And Mm -hmm. it it was, I remember there was a point of the identity that I had to let go of when I quit drinking was this identity of like this super fun party girl, which I've talked about before. But another piece of that identity that I think doesn't get talked about a lot was I was very attached to this identity of being like what I think of as the cool girl, like the girl who's, I mean, saying this like makes me feel embarrassed, but that like is different from other women, right? Which like, Mm. or like, I'm not like that, or I'm cool, or I'm down for whatever, or like, I am into casual sex, nothing wrong with casual sex, but that wasn't really what I wanted, right? It's like, playing the role that you think is like makes you so cool or I get Brazilian waxes because I just like it like that's not true I did not like it it's fucking painful and terrible and I will tell you what the day I stopped doing that was like the best day of my life and oh my god again this is just my story right this isn't like everyone's willing to like or not like whatever they want but there was like a real awakening for me around like that identity of being like the cool girl that sort of came out of like, I'm just like drunk and fun and like, sure, we can have sex and like, look at, I'm just like so open. But like, actually, it was all just this like performative nonsense. Mm, mm. And like what I what I hear with that is that you were in a sense like um, kind of, I don't know, I don't know if imprisoned is the right word, but I'm just thinking about this notion of sexual liberation and how like this idea that in order to be the ideal specimen of a woman, you had to be in those roles and you had to like kind of sacrifice your own needs and your own desires to, to fit in that role. Like, you know, getting Brazilian waxes when obviously you didn't want to like that to me, sexual liberation means ditching all of those shoulds and all of those preconceived notions, getting rid of this idea of, you know, your, your pleasure doesn't matter. Only his pleasure matters. Like throwing all of that shit in the compost bin and just like sitting with yourself and being like, what do I want? Like, like instinct, like, like interrogating every single thing that you do. And for me, you know, I was totally in that, in that frame of mind too, this idea that like, oh, you're, you're sexy. If you have, if you wear thong underwear, I fucking hate thong underwear. Like it is so uncomfortable. You know, I can't even, there are so many times where I've wasted money at going to Victoria's Secret, buying these really uncomfortably padded push-up bras with like 
super uncomfortable underwire because I thought that that's what you were supposed to do as a sexual adult woman. Um, and so being sexually liberated for me looked like chucking all of that shit out the window, like getting rid of my thongs, stop wearing bras that hurt and cut into my, into my chest and into my back and saying, what does my sexual liberation look like? Like, what does it mean to me to be sexually free? What images, what inspiration, um, what things make, like, what, what things do I desire? What turns me on? What turns me off? I just don't think that people think about those things. I think because we're, we're in the frame of mind that we are around sex, that sex, especially as women, sex is for men's pleasure. I mean, actually taking that time to sit down and ask those questions about yourself first and foremost, like kind of forgetting about your boyfriend, your girlfriend, like just seeing you as a sexual individual. I think that that's what it means to be sexually liberated. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot knowing that we were going to have this conversation sort of about the connection between sexual liberation and self-worth. Like for me, I think about I find myself to be jealous isn't the right word, but kind of inspired, you know, drawn to like sensual women who seem to like really be like thrumming with their own deep power. And yet I don't mm. personally value the work that it will take me to get to that place. It's like I think, you know, things like, well, there are more important things to do or that's too indulgent or that isn't productive. Right. Like there's I think that's also like an obstacle to overcome in this is because, you, you know, we were talking about guilt and shame before the guilt around like, is it even okay to take time to follow this line of curiosity? Yeah, absolutely. It is. Absolutely. It is. I mean, it is if you are someone who wants that, you know, I mean, for me, I, I mean, there was a, I was in a period in my life where I was like, you know what? I'm okay with not having sex. Like I'm kind of okay with this just being an issue that I have, but I don't really feel up to doing the deep work that needs to be done, um, to get me there. Like, I think it's okay to, especially for people who have had such dysfunctional relationships with sex, where sex is generally charged for them. I mean, so often I tell my clients to take sex off the table. Like, let's just stop talking about it because you've already been thinking about it. You're already in the cycle of shame about it. Let's just give you permission to, take sex off the table and, and to not force yourself to think about these things. And there's a time and a place for that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, I think that that's, that can be okay. I think it becomes a problem when you have desires to get out of this cycle of dysfunction, but you don't, you don't do it. You know what I mean? Like, I I don't know if that makes sense, but I, I think, I just want to, I want people to be able to give themselves permission to be where they are. And if they are in this place where sex is too charged for them, um, sex is just not easy. They don't really have a desire for sex. Like I'm not in the business of telling people to go against what their body is saying to them, um, in order for them to achieve some goal that maybe they don't even really want to achieve. But I think it, it takes some serious, like, um, it, it takes some serious self-awareness to know, okay, which is true. Is it that like, I generally do not have a desire to do this work because it's so charged for me. I'm tired of thinking about it. I just need some space. Or do I not want to do this work because I know that in doing this work, I'm going to have to get really, really uncomfortable mm-hmm. and I'm going to have to start analyzing my current relationship. And I'm going to have to start thinking about making this more of a priority. 
Yeah. I mean, I also think there's something to be said for either one of those probably wouldn't be true forever, right? Like this is where I'm at right now and that's okay, right? Maybe where someone's at two weeks from now, two months from now, two years from now, right? That it's, I I, I like what you said about sort of honoring what your body's telling you. I mean, that's, if we think about liberation, right? Like it has to include all of that. Like liberation isn't liberation if being liberated means fitting into this one box that someone says, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. And oftentimes, you know, I, I spend time in sessions with women where we're not really talking about sex. Instead, we're talking about the relationship that they have with their body. And I don't believe that we can do sexual liberation work without tackling that aspect of it first. Yeah. Like I don't believe that we can, um, we can really be sexually liberated um, if we have a fucked up relationship with our bodies or if we have a messed up relationship with self-care or, you know, w- whatever, whatever it can be. So I like to look at this from a holistic viewpoint. Um, I don't believe that that if you, if you just work out on the sex part, everything else falls into place. Oftentimes sex is connected to other things. Sex is connected to body. It's connected to self-worth. It's connected to, um, past traumas that you've had that may not even have anything to do with sex. It may have something to do with your idea about what it means to be a woman or what your idea about what it means to be a success or, or whatever, you know, like I think for me, sex has been used as sort of a gateway, um, particularly for my clients, but also for me too, toward like just general self-discovery. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm interested to hear, uh, kind of not necessarily currently, but along, you know, the, this path, when you were really starting to do this work, tell me about the role of masturbation. Oh man. So that's so funny that you ask that. Um, because <laughs> I've been, I've been thinking a lot about masturbation over the last couple of weeks because May, um, at least in the time that we're doing this interview, May is international masturbation month. So I've been thinking about, uh, the relationship that I have with my own sexual relationship with myself. Um, so masturbation was pivotal for me in, in order for me to be able to start healing, um, my idea about sex and the traumas that I have with sex. And then also just, um, I guess, exploring what it looks like to be a sexual individual. I mean, it doesn't get much more individual than that, like having a sexual relationship with yourself. And so, um, buying my first vibrator, not for, not for me and my partner, but just for me was a very like liberation or liberation. It was a very liberating thing because, um, because at that time it felt like I was doing this thing just for me. Like it had nothing to do with the performance aspect of it. It had nothing to do with like, I'm going to buy this vibrator so I can masturbate in front of my boyfriend so that he can be turned on. It was like, I'm going to buy this vibrator so that I can explore, um, what brings me pleasure so that I can explore my body so that I can take time out of my day to give myself some sexual self care. And I think masturbation is a huge component in terms of, uh, of sexual liberation. I don't think that we can successfully have sexual relationships with others if we don't have a good sexual relationship with ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I, so kind of piggybacking on that a little bit, because everything that you said feels, you know, very true to me. And I can relate to that, of course. Um, what was it like sort of 
building that relationship with yourself, right? Because it's like the idea of a relationship, it's kind of a, it's a back and forth. I mean, obviously even a relationship with yourself, like a relationship takes kind of time and care and effort, right? Like I think we have this fantasy that a relationship, whether it's a friendship, romantic with ourselves, otherwise just kind of like pops out fully formed, right? Without acknowledging that, you know, like relationships are messy and take time. So what was that like sort of building up that sexual relationship with yourself? Um, it was, it was a little, mm, it was frustrating because even within that, I was still, I was still having issues and still trying to figure out or still, still feeling like, uh, ideas about having a sexual relationship with myself were, were being imposed upon me, you know, like the, the idea even that like in order to have a solo sexual relationship with myself, I had to use a vibrator. And so, um, you know, I mean, I, it's, there's nothing wrong with using vibrators. I love, I love sex toys. I think that they can be an amazing tool to learning, um, to, to learning and exploring who you are as a sexual being. But, um, just this notion that, you know, I don't have the power with my own hands to get myself off that I have to use this tool, um, in order for me to give myself an orgasm, um, was a little problematic for me. And I, I mean, this was later down the line. I mean, I think for me, the vibrator was like literally a liberation tool for me because it, for one thing, like it made me realize like, there's nothing wrong with me. Like I'm able to have an orgasm. It's not that, it's not that, you know, I'm broken. It's not that my body just doesn't respond sexually. It, it actually does. So that was a really, really good thing. But I do think, you know, if we want to get deeper into that, that, you know, this notion of, of, you know, be only being able to access your, your orgasm through some sort of machine was just, there was a level of disconnect for me that, um, that was coming up. And that's when I sort of had to like analyze like, Hmm, there are a lot of shoulds that I'm putting on this, this solo sexual relationship. Like I should only masturbate with a vibrator and like being able to like sit back and like ask myself, what is it that I want? What is it that I want to experience and and explore? Um, that was, that was really, really important. Um, I, I just think it's, I think it's, I think it's good to just be curious and to, to analyze the things that you think about and, and to really sort of parse out why you think them and, and the shoulds that are imposed upon you and why you feel like you need to, why you feel like you need to, uh, to, to do them, you know, I mean, not one size doesn't fit all. I think it's, we're all so different and we all have, um, I guess, different ways of, of doing things and that's okay. I don't even know if I answered your question. I yeah. kind of feel like I went off on a tangent. No, 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 but I mean, <laughs> I'm here for that. You did. There's no, there's no like correct answer. Just like interested in your thoughts about it. Cool. Um, what have you learned about how to get out of your head and more into your body during sex? Mm. Well, that's a really, really big one. Um, for me, the one thing that was keeping me from even being out of my head was sort of micromanaging my orgasm. (laughs) Interesting. Um, Yeah. In the act of sex, that was definitely, I mean, obviously again, these are, 
these are things that I had like years and years and years of me being able to like really sit down and sort of peel back the layers. Like I didn't just automatically, you know, wake up thinking like I'm micromanaging my orgasm. Like it took a lot of self interrogation to figure this stuff out. But, um, that was like the main thing that was really keeping me, um, uh, out of my body and into my head. This idea that, I could potentially think myself into orgasm if I just really, really concentrate hard enough. And then like the anxiety of, of when I wasn't coming at a certain particular amount of time, like this amount of time passed and where's my orgasm? Like, why am, am I not coming? And then that just like completely starts this cycle of there's something wrong with me. I'm not doing something right. Um, so, so this idea of micromanaging my orgasm definitely kept me out of my body and, um, and more into my head. And so what I had to do was kind of let the, the orgasm go. Like I, I had to stop seeing orgasm as the reason for sex, because for me, that's what I, that was my understanding of it. Like that was the whole reason why people had sex was to have the orgasm. And so I started to think about like, what would it look like to take orgasm out of the equation and just, just be in the moment with my partner and to just feel the sensations in my body that I'm feeling and just saying, you know, if an orgasm happens, cool. If it doesn't happen, that's cool too, because ultimately orgasm isn't the goal. It's a bonus, but the goal is for connection. The goal is, is, um, uh, like, you know, feeling into your senses and, and being intimate and connecting with your partner. And I mean, God, that takes a lot of practice, you know, because I mean, again, like coming back to the things that we're taught and the cultural references we have, I mean, everything that I saw about sex was, I mean, the orgasm was the end all be all of it. And so being able to challenge that notion is really, really difficult because it means that you're kind of having to pioneer your own way and, and, um, and, and rewrite this, this idea of, of sexuality and pleasure and goals and all of that. Yeah. I'm really grateful that you brought this up because I think that this is it's something that I've definitely thought about a lot that when we make the criteria for what, you know, success looks like so narrow, right? Like if the criteria is like orgasm, orgasm within a certain amount of time, orgasm at the same time, or, you know, whatever, how, however tightly we want to make the criteria, it really changes the experience. And I think oftentimes like what you're speaking to can ruin the experience or can ruin or can make us lose sight of the fact that that's only one part, you know, a great part to be sure, but like one part of a much larger, richer experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So something, another thing that I wanted to ask you about, and I think it's sort of aligned with what we've been discussing about, you know, the sort of gender roles that we're taught or, you know, inhabit and this idea of, um, sex not being performance, right? Like for a male gaze, I think a large part of that, or at least a relevant part of that comes down to like also learning the larger ability to sort of recognize and then ask for what it is that you want. Right. Mm -hmm. Which of course is relevant in, in sex and elsewhere, but what did that look like for you? This sort of evolution into like, how to ask for what you want. <laughs> well, first I needed to know what the fuck I wanted. <laughs> right, totally. <laughs> you know, like, um, that, I mean, I, I never even considered that, that I, I, well, that's, I don't know. I, I just, I don't know if I felt that I didn't have once, but it wasn't, that wasn't a part of my, 
my frame of thinking with this. Like I just, I thought that sex was very easy. It's just, you know, you, you put a penis into your vagina and that's sex, what sex is. And it should be pleasurable by itself. And they're like, why, why would you need to ask for anything else? You know? So my, my concept of sex and and sexuality was severely limited. It was very, it was very small, um, and really just like not accurate. And so, um, so thinking about this idea of sex, not being transactional, but like, like a collaboration and thinking about like, Oh, so my husband is obviously getting his needs met. Like there is no part of him that is, is holding back in terms of telling me what he needs, what he wants. Why am I holding myself back? Like if this is a, a partnership, if this, if sex is a collaboration, what is my part? look like, you know, what, in what ways am I contributing? And then also in what ways am I getting my own needs met? And so that sort of started this, this process of asking myself, what do I want? Like what turns me on? And and then again, you know, that kind of goes back to this relationship of, of, of masturbation. You know, I kind of say that like, if you don't know what the hell you want, how in the world is your partner going to know? Like, and how are you going to be able to to communicate that in a way that, um, that is understandable. And so for me, masturbation was kind of that bridge between like masturbation was a bridge between like what I want and then asking for what it, for what I wanted and, and actually asking that of my partner. So masturbation allowed me, uh, it allowed me the space to kind of get particular and specific about the way that my arousal works, the things that I like, uh, the way that my body likes to be touched, also how long it generally takes me to have an orgasm and what I need in order for, for that orgasm to happen. Um, I mean, gosh, masturbation is so important in that sense. At least it was for me because it allowed me to be able to identify my needs and, um, And I mean, and also, you know, beyond that, beyond just like the physical piece, I think that there's something to be said about the emotional needs um, that I needed in order to have a sex life that felt safe and free for me. You know, I mean, coming from coming from a background with sexual trauma means that like I need to feel emotionally safe before I can give my body to someone And what that means is me being able to convey to my partner, here are the things that you can do that let me know that I am safe with you, that you're not going to cross my boundaries, that you are going to be an advocate for my safety and, and that you are going to advocate or be an advocate for consent. Um, that's huge. That, that was huge for me. Just being able to not only hold the physical aspect of sex, um, really high and thinking about my physical needs, but also, you know, my emotional needs, the things that I need to, in in order for me to feel free and relaxed and soften, um, in this experience of sex. Mm -hmm. And I'm a, I'm a demisexual. And, and so what demisexuality basically means is that you have to, you have to seduce my heart in order to fuck my body. And so it's very, very important for me to, um, that my partner's understand that, that they understand that emotionally we need to connect emotionally. I need to feel, feel safe with you. 
um, in order for us to have a sexual relationship and a, a sexual relationship that won't have me spiraling into, oh, this sex is only for you. I am just a hole that is to be filled, you know, things like that, that can tend to come up and get triggered. Mm. So much beautiful honesty in what you just shared. I think that it's particularly powerful to think of because it's it's really easy, I think, to throw around platitudes, right? Well, like in order to have fulfilling sex life, you have to, you know, you have to be responsible for asking for what you want or need, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's an easy thing to just say. But I love even sort of like the what you brought up that even that one thing that sounds like a single step is actually multiple steps before, right? Because this idea of, okay, well, first you have to figure out what it is that you want and need. And that in itself can be, you know, a multiple step process. And then I think there's also a piece that doesn't get talked about enough of allowing yourself to want what you want, like to not judge what it is that you want and need, right? Like I think, and I I think this comes down in kind of a gender role thing too, that there's this fear of not wanting to be too much, too needy, too, you know, that's like very, can be very ingrained. And so it's, you know, who am I to have all of these needs and wants, right? And to to actually get to the place where not only do you recognize what it is that you want and need, you allow it to be okay that you want to need those things and then to be able to ask for them, right? That it's because I think that oftentimes the reason that, you know, seemingly simple advice, like, well, just speak up, ask for what you need. Like that sounds really easy, but I think hidden beneath that is a lot of complexity. Absolutely. And it kind of goes back to what you were saying about self-worth, you know, like you're not going to be able to ask for what you need if you feel or ask for what you want, if you feel that what you need or what you want, you're not worthy of. Um, so I think it's important again, like, and that's why I love, I love the work that I do because it is so deep. Like there's so many layers to this. So many people think that with the work that I do, I'm just teaching people how to have orgasms, but I'm like, no, no, no. Like sex, sex is, is not just physical. I mean, there's so many parts of this, um, so many working pieces that need to come into an alignment and need to be healed and explored and reclaimed in order for you to have, um, the kind of sexual expression that you want to have that fits you, that suits you. Um, and yeah, self-worth is a huge piece in terms of asking for what you want. Yeah. So I'd love to pivot a little bit um, and dig into sort of a a series of of blog posts that you wrote, stories that you've shared about non-monogamy. And I would love Mm. to hear about um, that, that, that experience with your, just where you're at. I mean, I I actually, it's funny. I didn't look at the the date stamp on the post, so I don't actually know how recent that is, but I'm definitely curious about the non-monogamous relationship that you have or had. I don't know what the correct tense is with your husband. You know, that's so funny. I was thinking about that this morning, actually, because, you know, I, I've always been under the assumption that if something isn't being used, it doesn't exist. And so currently, like for me and, and my partner, like we're not in any extra, extracurricular (laughs) relationships. Um, that's a funny way of saying it, but we're not in, in any, you know, we don't have any extra lovers at this time, but that doesn't necessarily have to mean that we're not non-monogamous. Um, so that's kind of, that's kind of where I am. Like, I don't know, I saw this really amazing analogy once that, you know, just because uh, a sleeper couch is operating as a couch most of the time doesn't mean that it's not a sleeper couch. That's such a terrible analogy. No, I get it. I get it. 
it doesn't mean that it's not also a bed. Sure. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, um, so that's kind of, that's kind of how I I'm seeing it. I think, you know, Jonathan and I, we've been exploring, um, non-monogamy pretty much actually since we moved to Oregon. So for the last six years, we've been sort of on and off in this process of, of practicing non-monogamy. Um, and that has been a whirlwind. Oh my God. <laughs> there's so, there's so much in that, um, that the whole experience has been incredibly rich and has really like brought a lot of things to the surface about love and relationships and ownership and jealousy. And oh my God, there's just, there's so much in it, so much in it. What led to you deciding to give that a try or to move in the direction of even having those conversations? Oh, girl, do you want the long story or do you want the short story? Listen, I'm here. I will take every, any and all stories. I mean, I want to be respectful of your time, but get, lay it on me. (laughs) Okay. So, um, so when we lived in California, uh, Jonathan was in this process of doing, uh, martial arts training. He was trying to be a Jeet Kundo, um, instructor. And, um, in that process, he became friends with this guy who had a wife and, um, his, his, um, his, they, they were sort of teaching him. They were like, they were like giving him lessons and, and things like that. And he was also like hanging out with them a bunch. I wasn't really a part of that, you know, thing. Cause I'm not into martial arts. I'm not really into, you know, like sometimes they would go hiking and Mount Baldy and stuff like it was just a little too much for me. So I'm like, you go, you have fun. Um, and you know, they're spending a lot of time with each other and, um, I'd say they'd probably did that for about a year before Jonathan came up to me. Well, I'll, I'll take a step back. So we were watching this documentary. It was about this commune in the seventies and they were talking all about, you know, how they were practicing, uh, polyamory, which was the first, like the first time I ever heard that word in my life. I was like, I don't know what that is. I, I, it seems like some like white people shit. I don't want to, <laughs> <laughs> um, like legit, like seriously. Well, because it was, I was watching this commune of all these like white hippies in like the California, you know, hills and, you know, sharing, sharing wives and having multiple children and, and living off the land. So that was like my first understanding of this concept of, of, uh, non-monogamy. And so funny, like the universe is so crazy, but like the very next day, like after we watched that, that documentary, Jonathan approached me and was like, so remember that documentary we were watching? I was like, well, duh, we were watching it yesterday. Uh, he was like, I, there's something I want to tell you. Uh, basically he revealed to me that he had feelings for his instructor's wife and that this wasn't, this wasn't something that they were keeping on the down low, that they, that the husband and wife sort of had a, a, an arrangement where the husband was fine with it. I, I guess they were sort of practicing non-monogamy or they were in an open relationship. And he basically said to me, like, I am having emotional and romantic feelings for this woman. And I'm not saying that I want to do anything about it. I'm just like coming to you with this information and letting you know that I don't really know what to do. Like this has never happened to me before. And I mean, I freaked the fuck out because I was like, how can you possibly say that you love me and you want to be with me, but you have feelings for someone else? Like it, the two didn't make sense to me. Um, and so fast forward a few months, you know, we're having these conversations and, you know, um, I'm feeling incredibly uncomfortable about it. And I basically told him like, look, it's, it's good that you feel like 
this is something that you want to explore and do. I'm just not with it. Like I, I don't think that I will ever, ever, ever be open to this. This is not my thing. Like I'm happy for you and, and all of that, but like, I don't really want anything to do with this. And I would actually prefer that you not see these people anymore because I feel like that, that it's just opening a door that I'm just not ready to go through right now. And so luckily enough, you know, and I I wasn't really giving him an ultimatum between like, you need to choose me or this experience because I mean, ultimately for him, he wasn't really ready to be in a relationship with her. And he was more so just concerned about the feelings that were coming up for him and not really sure how to navigate it. And essentially I told him like, look, if this is a part of your identity and something that you feel that you, you cannot live without, like it's a huge part of who you are. I don't want to hold you back from that. Like, I'm not about to tell you to pick our marriage over, you know, your desires to be polyamorous. If this is something that's really serious for you, please pursue that. But we'll have to lovingly part ways because that's not something that I can support at this time. I'm just not ready. And um, for him, he was like, no, this is like not a make it or break it deal. Like this is something that I can, I can essentially put on the back burner. Like I'm already in a really good relationship with you. I don't really feel like I need to have this part of me fulfilled in order for us to, in order for me to, to live a, a, you know, a fulfilled life. So, um, so that was kind of the end of it at the time. We're just like, okay, that's great. Like we moved through that and we actually relocated, we relocated to Oregon and, um, uh, I, out of nowhere, caught feelings for someone. And, uh, that was, that was when I really started to think like, huh, okay. So maybe this is something that we need to talk about. Maybe this is something that we both need to sit down and, and think about as a, a viable option in our relationship. And so it started from there. Like we didn't actually, I mean, it took us a few years before we actually had a physical relationship with someone. We spent a long time. We spent a long time talking about things. We read a lot of books um, that helped us to unpack the things that were coming up around this, particularly around the idea of jealousy and ownership. Like this idea that now that we're married, that means that I own you and you owe me and we are not allowed to be sexual individuals. We're not allowed to have sexual desires and sexual needs outside of our relationship. And if we do, there's something wrong with the relationship. There's something fundamentally wrong with us. So we had to unpack all of that. We had to unlearn, um, the very monogamous, uh, understandings of relationship that we were taught based on the fact that, you know, we were brought up in monogamous households and, um, it took years. It took years and years and a lot of stuff in there about my queer identity and, and coming, coming to some place of acceptance around that, like, you know, being okay with the fact that I had a thing for women and I, I wanted to explore that. Um, yeah, it, it was. And, and, you know, ultimately we, when we were finally ready, when we felt like we had the boundaries in play, like in place to be able to practice this in a way where our relationship didn't come crashing down uh, because some one of us had a first date. I mean, that was a really, really um, exciting time for us because it not only did it show us both that the the foundation of our relationship was very strong, but it also showed us that, that we were very mature, that we were able to kind of separate um separate ourselves from this and not internalize it and take it personally that if our partner was out on a date with someone, it didn't mean that 
that there was an absence of love or it didn't mean that there was something wrong with the relationship. It just meant like, oh, they're doing their thing. They're having a good time. And um, they're they're a sexual individual. They should be allowed to explore that part of themselves. So yeah, it's it's been a wild, a very, very wild ride. I have so many stories. Yeah, this sounds like something that we need to do like a part two, right? Like all about this. I'd love that. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think that what's most powerful for me as a listener to that story that you just shared, and like you said, right, that's a small piece of it, that, you know, I think it's very easy with something that is not mainstream for us to hold on to like whatever it, the small glimpse of it, right? Like that it is this like hippie commune, you know, like this is <laughs> stuff for white people or whatever, whatever you said, that was so funny that like, and, or to think like, to think of polyamory or non-monogamy, like in that one, I mean, I think a lot of us, our experience with like those words or like that, the thought of that relationship has a negative connotation, right? Like for right. All, all the reasons that you said, right. And like how invested our culture is in this, you know, like heteronormative monogamous, whatever, like setup that we have, but right. that there's something that's really powerful for me to hear someone who does not fit, right? Like what I would consider to be, right? Like you're not like a 60 year old white hippie, right? Like living on. (laughs) So like, but this maybe sounds silly, but like when we only think about something in like one small context, right? It's like the idea that representation matters, right? That it's like very empowering for me to hear like, oh, these folks, this is something that they have worked through and are thinking about and made their relationship looked this way. And then it looked this way. And maybe now it's going to look this way. Like there's something that's just really powerful. I think about just telling the truth about what happened. Yeah. And, you know, also just this idea that we get to choose, you know, like for us, it was about, you know, yes, we were raised in a monogamous household, but we necessarily, we didn't necessarily choose to believe in monogamy. Like it was, it was something that was imposed upon us. It was something that was kind of like a a given, like we didn't really have that choice. And so we wanted to be able to choose what marriage meant, what commitment meant, what fidelity meant. And for us, the non-monogamy or at least aspects of non-monogamy was, was a way for us to be able to be the full expression of who we are. And, you know, for, for us both as, as people who are not straight, like that's a huge part of it. You know, the, the reality is that we are young and we're, we're never going to be this young ever again. Um, there's a, there's a part of us that wants to actualize and, and realize this part of our identities that if we were to follow this monogamous model, we wouldn't be able to do. And because he and I are so, uh, we, we value our individuality so much and we value our personal growth so much. It, it just made sense for us to be able to have that on the table and to, to be open to that as, as something to explore. And, you know, there are some days where, or some times where it's not, uh, it hasn't felt right or not right in the sense of like, we were against it. It just, you know, some, sometimes we're just like, you know what, I don't really want to think about going on dates with people. Cause Oh my God, dating is so hard. Oh my God. Um, you know, so, so there are times where we're just like, yeah, we're not really feeling it. And, you know, as a couple, we have that privilege. I recognize that we have that privilege to sort of go in and out um, of that. But I think we will always have those desires because we 
speaking for myself, I, I'm not a straight person and there, I love my husband and I love the relationship that we have, but there are certain parts of that relationship where I won't be able to be fulfilled because he's a, he's a man, (laughs) you know? And so I like having that freedom. I think there's something also important in what you said about essentially like the power of choice that even if you wind up, you know, for me, monogamy feels like what's right in my marriage. We've, you know, we have talked about it. And, but even that, like, even if you're making the mainstream choice or the, what I mean, it doesn't have to be mainstream or not, there's something really empowering about thinking about it and choosing it, not just being in it as a default. Exactly. You know, I always like to say that non-monogamy isn't for everyone. And it's true. It's not for everyone, but also monogamy isn't for everyone either. And I think that when you think about it in that way, like if you think that, Hmm, what would I choose for myself? If I had been given the choice, would I have chosen monogamy and why, why, why do I choose monogamy? Why do I choose to only be with one person? Um, and really kind of getting to the bottom of that, I think that can make you show up in your relationship even more stronger because you are actually saying, I choose this. I choose to be in a relationship with you. And yeah, choice is so important. So you got, you mentioned that there were, um, you know, some books and resources that were really helpful for you guys. Is there one in particular that you would recommend for someone who's curious or interested in this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I highly recommend the book, The Ethical Slut. Um, I mean, it's, it's one of those books that everyone who is considering alternative relationships, maybe not polyamory, maybe not non-monogamy, but just curious about that. I think that that is the best book to read. I also think that even if you're not someone who is interested in non-monogamy, even if you're not someone who's curious about it, I think reading books about that is really important because I know for me and Jonathan, having read those books and getting into the kind of discussions that we got into because of those books, I mean, it just blew our relationship wide open and made, made things like trust and fidelity and, you know, all these things that we never really would have questioned because it felt so intrinsically ingrained in our relationship structure as a whole anyway. Like it just, it really allowed us to kind of take a step back and again, kind of choose what we want to believe about our relationships. So I've actually sent this book to people who are in monogamous relationships, but want to have healthier, stronger uh, monogamous relationships because they want to kind of take a step back and start questioning, why do I feel the way that I feel? Like why, where does jealousy come from? Why do I feel like I own my partner? Where does that come from? So I think that even if there's someone who is listening right now is like, Oh my God, I could never, ever, ever, ever in a million years do that. But they, but they are in this place of wanting to strengthen their relationship and, and kind of talking about this concept of choice actively choosing their relationship and choosing what they want to believe about things like love and sex. Um, I, the ethical slut is an amazing book to start with. All right. I'll read it. You sold me. I'm convinced. Yeah. (laughs) Give it a, give it a read. And I highly recommend that you read it with your partner. Um, because the book itself is just so awesome. It's, it's going to bring up a lot of stuff for you. I know at one point, Jonathan and I were reading it and we were getting through it and it was great. And we got to this, the the chapter about jealousy and I literally threw the book across the room and I couldn't read it for three months because I was so triggered and it was bringing up some major, major shit for me about like abandonment and ownership. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a really, really good book to read with your partner and for you both to kind of like create this dialogue about what your values are and, you know, what you choose in your relationship. So mm-hmm. highly recommend it. 
I love it. So the last thing that I wanted to ask you about before we start to wrap up, um, I love what you're doing on Instagram. I love just the whole vibe, all of it. And I know that this idea of sort of taking sexy self photos, it has been a powerful thing from you from what I've read and heard that this, this idea of sort of taking sexy self photos as like a type of self care. I'd love to hear more Mm -hmm. about that. Yeah. So I, I was really, I've been really, really fascinated by this idea of, uh, taking up, uh, space with my sexual body, because one thing that I think a lot of us have been taught is that sex is only allowed to be expressed, um, in the privacy of your own bedroom, that you are more respected and more, um, more modest, more, more, I don't know, honored if that sexual part of you is kept hidden. And, um, and for some people that's totally fine. Like for the record, I don't think that anyone who chooses to keep their sex lives private is opting out of, or, you know, being a bad person or or whatever. Just for me, I started thinking about that, like thinking about this idea that something that is so much a part of my life and especially something that is so much a part of my work, how I often hide it, how I often don't, allow myself to take up space in that way. And so I, I was really curious about what would happen if I started taking up space with my sexual body? What would happen if I started, um, if I started being very open and honest about the sex that I was having, not in a space of like, Oh, I'm writing a particular blog post about this, but like actually infusing sex into every aspect of my life, because honestly it it already is. I mean, I'm, I'm already experiencing and thinking about sex um, in my life every day, all the time because of the work that I do. So I wanted to kind of shine a light on that and like play around with this idea of, of sexual um, space taking. And what that looked like for me is just taking sexy selfies, like taking pictures of myself um, in a way that isn't, you know, mainstream pornographic. Like, you know, I'm not like spread eagle with my legs wide open and taking crop shots, but like, you know, just being able to take pictures of myself and of my body through through a lens of sexuality, but particularly through a female gaze, because for so much of my life, and we've talked about this so much in our, in our conversation today, the concept of, of sexuality for women is often very performative. It's performative for the male gaze. And so I wanted to be able to see myself as a sexual being through my own eyes, not through the eyes of my partner, not through the eyes of what I think men would want, which is what I've been doing for most of my sexual life. But I I wanted to kind of take my power back and see myself through, through the, through the lens of my own, my own gaze. So, um, you know, it, it started as just a, a thing that I was kind of like dabbling with and, and thinking about. Um, I, I didn't really think about it as a political thing. I just thought like, I'm going to try this and see what happens. And very quickly it turned political. Um, and it, it just really shined a light on how women's sexuality, female sexuality is very uh, policed and um, is seen as a a bad thing. I mean, I can't tell you how many times my pictures have been removed off of Instagram. And these are not pictures where my nipples are showing or where um, my labia is showing. I mean, these are just pictures where I'm tastefully covered up, but I am I am proclaiming in my caption and also in my picture, like, this is not for you. This is for me. I'm taking this picture because I am a sexually empowered woman and I want 
I want to empower myself and see myself through that gaze. Um, people are very, very not happy about that. People get very, very angry. Um, when, when you kind of take the power into your own hands. And so what sort of turned out to be what what started as like this fun little project that I was going to try and, you know, self love and all that has very quickly turned into being uh, a political display of sexual ownership, which I didn't really want to go into, but, um, but I, I appreciate that I ended up where I am with it because it's it's really it really helped light a, a new fire under my ass about the importance of this work, like yeah. the importance of sexual liberation and um, and being able to take up space in that way. Yeah. I mean, I also whether we discuss it or not, whether it enters the conversation or not, I don't think that it's possible for female sexual liberation to not be political. Yeah. Which is unfortunate, I right? Mean, like please. maybe, yeah. maybe I was naive. I just thought like sex as a whole is is what's being, you know, is is being uh, political or whatever. But no, actually, it's not. It's it's. I mean, male sexuality and and male gazy type shit is not policed in the same way that women's sexuality is, um, and that just like again, just reinforce the importance of the work that I do and how important it is. Like, even though my pictures get taken down on Instagram, like it's, it's just a, it just lights a fire underneath me that says, okay, well, you know, got, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. Yeah. I love it. I think this is a good place to start to wrap up. And the way that we end these is with what we call community questions. So there are nine sort of rapid fire, sort of random questions that the Real Talk Radio listeners want me to ask all of our eight guests this season. So everyone this season is answering the same nine questions if you're down for some random questions. Heck yeah, let's do it. Okay. So the first question, what is your current guilty pleasure? (laughs) Oh man, I have so many. I have so many. Um, but the one that I actually feel guilty about, because I think, you know, this idea of guilty pleasure, at least for women can just be like, what gives you pleasure and what you should, and, and you should feel guilty about because it gives you pleasure. Um, for me, like I literally feel guilty about this. Like it's not something that I like talking about because it's kind of shameful. Um, my guilty pleasure is like bad reality television, like really just like trashy people getting into fights, pulling off (laughs) weaves and wigs. Like it's so bad, but I love it. Like, I don't, I think it's because like the, the current state of our world right now, politically, our potential, political or particularly our political world right now, I have so much pent up rage and so much fear and anxiety. And I'm not the type of person to put hands on people. I'm, I'm more of a lover, not a fighter in the physical sense. So I feel like I get a sense of release when I'm watching these like all out brawls happen on these terrible reality shows. Um, the show that I'm watching right now is black ink crew and it's just, it is so messy. It's so trashy, but I love it. Like it, it feels really good to watch. (laughs) That's amazing. Um, (laughs) what's one change that you've made in your life? Maybe it was something small, like a habit, a bigger lifestyle change, a relationship, a career change, anything that was really tough for you at the time, but totally worth it in the end. Hmm. That is a really, really good question. Um, oh my gosh. 
Hmm. I think this, this notion of, uh, standing up for myself, um, not allowing people to, to bully me or to abuse me or to steal from me. Um, I think based on the way that I was brought up and, um, the way that I know a lot of women are brought up, you know, we're taught to keep ourselves small or we're taught not to make a fuss. We're taught not to be too much. And, um, and because of that, I've definitely allowed people to walk over me. I've definitely allowed people to take advantage of me. Um, and I've kind of seen that as a way of, uh, uh, like, like noble, like there's something very noble in that, like turning the other cheek. Um, and it's been, it's been hard for me to speak up. It's been hard for me to, to, to stand up for myself, but at the end of the day, and I know I'm being very vague about this, but at at the end of the day, it's, it feels so good, even though it's so hard and there can be like pushback from that. It just, at the end of the day, knowing that I did the best I could to stand up for myself and to, to call out the people that are abusing me or trying to take me down. I mean, that is, it's not so much of a habit, but it's, it's definitely something that it takes a lot of practice for me to, to actually do and to stick with. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that's vague at all. I think that's incredibly powerful. Okay, cool. (laughs) What helps you to stick with a long-term project or goal that you're working on? Mm, Um, I think remembering and always coming back to why I want to do it. Because I think sometimes for me, I can kind of get tunnel vision and lose sight of the reasons why I'm doing something. Um, so I think returning and and constantly coming back to the reasons why I'm loving what I'm doing or the reasons why it's important for this project to happen. Um, I think that that is what helps keep me grounded in the completion of it. What's something that you're not doing right now because you're afraid? <laughs> Isn't that the best question ever? I can't oh take any credit. I did not come up with these questions. God. I just chose them. <laughs> oh, I feel like you just like, you punched me in the face with that question. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Slash you're welcome. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, it's great. It's great. Actually, can you repeat it? Yeah. What's something that you're not doing right now because you're afraid? Oh, oh my gosh. I'm not quitting something because I'm afraid. I'm, I'm doing too much. Um, uh, yeah, I, I should, I'm doing too much. I probably should stop doing too much, but I'm afraid to stop doing too much. <laughs> What's something that a lot of people seem to do that you don't do on purpose? Hmm. That I don't do on purpose. <laughs> These questions are wild. Um, can I get an example? Like, what exactly do you mean by that? Um, I mean, I mean anything that comes to mind. But basically, I mean, someone's answer this season was that they don't mow their lawn, even though their neighbors do. Um, okay, okay. Like, just so something I... like that you've chosen. To, like, for me, it's essentially I like very, very rarely wear makeup. Right? Like, that's an example for me. Okay, so I was thinking of this in like these really deep terms. That's oh, why it could I was be that like, too. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I I don't necessarily want to hurt my brain by trying to make it all deep and and uh, profound. So I, I like that. Um, I oh this this one's easy. Um, shaving. I haven't shaved my legs in like three years. So um, yeah, and that's intentional. I haven't shaved my legs or my armpits because I don't want to. <laughs> 
And that is a full reason because I don't want to I'm obsessed with that. Um, what advice would you give yourself five years ago? Oh, hmm. what would I give myself advice about five years ago? That was around the time we saw each other last at WGS 2012. Yes. Yes, it is. Um, Oh my gosh. Wow. Has it been that long? Jesus. That's so crazy. Time moves fast. Yes, it does. Um, you know, I think the advice that I would give myself is to be myself. I think as an empath, I can very easily absorb other people's energies and intentions and moods and kind of, I'm, I'm very good at like, reading in between the lines of people and manufacturing scenarios and, and all of that stuff. I think, I think what's most important, what I, what I really should have known back then, especially because I was just kind of starting my work is the importance of just being yourself and, and just following your heart and not looking at what other people are doing, not internalizing other people's successes, just focus on you, like stay in your lane, Mm -hmm. stay in your lane. Amen. Mm -hmm. When you look ahead at the next few months, what do you feel most excited about? Oh my gosh, I'm excited about summer. Like I, I, I know that that's not in terms like I don't know. Maybe maybe it's okay that it has nothing to do with like work and productivity, but um, it's it was a brutal fucking winter here in Oregon, particularly in Portland. It was just terrible. It was absolutely wretched. And I am so, I'm so looking forward to sunshine. I'm looking forward to, um, being almost naked outside by a river with a book and, um, sipping some sparkling water. Um, and just like having some time to relax. I've had a really, really busy year already. Like the first half of my year has been cuckoo bananas. And so I'm really looking forward to having some serious downtime. Yeah. Preach about all of that. The nice weather, winter being hard in Oregon. I am with you. (laughs) We need the sun. Oh my God. I'm withering. I can't stand it anymore. More sunshine, please. (laughs) So the next question is about books. I know we talked about the ethical slut, but are there any other books that you would say have either had a really big impact on you or that you reread or recommend the most often? Yes. Um, two books that I recommend most often. I'm constantly sending these to people. I ship them to my clients even. The first book is Women's Anatomy of Arousal. Uh, That book is amazing. I know that there's a lot of books out there that are trying to get you more into your sexuality and um, educate you about your body and and your anatomy. But uh, Women's Anatomy of Arousal is like one of the, the most comprehensible and fun books that I've read about it. Like I've read a lot of books and a lot of these books are typically boring and they're dry and the pictures suck and the exercises are boring and dry. Um, but women's anatomy of arousal is so fun. There's a lot of amazing exercises in there that can get you, um, into having a solo sexual relationship with yourself and, and into, uh, you know, restoring a sense of balance and acceptance in your relationship with your body. Um, so highly recommend that. That one's by Sherry Winston. Uh, the second book that I read recently that has just like blown my mind is, uh, come as you are by Emily Nagoski, I think. Um, and Oh my God, this is one of those books that I read and I was like, wow, I literally don't know everything about myself that I thought I did in terms of who I am as a sexual being. Um, she basically, like this book basically talks about why it is some people have a hard time getting aroused, why it is some people uh, have a hard time with sex 
and the very scientific reasons behind it. Like it has nothing to do with uh, you being broken. It has nothing to do with uh, something being wrong with you. It just, the system around it is broken. And um, oh my gosh, like if, if out of the two books, I would say pick Come As You Are first because that book, oh my gosh, it's so good. It's yeah, so good. our mutual friend, Molly Mayhar, just recommended that book to me like two weeks ago. So oh. all right, all right, I hear you. Yeah, get it, get it. It is so, so good. Okay. So good. So the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action right now, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves, a small action to take? Mm, I think kind of just following the the thread that, or continuing to follow the thread that we have been following throughout this conversation is uh, asking yourself, who are you as a sexual being? Um, that question sounds so simple, especially it sounds simple when you ask it, but like the, the, the answers that come up are going to be very, very interesting. You may not be able to answer that question. Mm-hmm. And if you can answer that question, that is a prompt for you to go deeper. Like, why don't you know that you're a sexual being? Like, why can't you answer that question? What's holding you back from being able to know yourself as a sexual being? What things are in place, um, that are keeping you from being familiar with that, uh, yeah, I, I, I highly recommend that people ask that question. The moment that I ask myself that question is when I truly begin my sexual liberation journey. What's the best place for people to find more about your work and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Yeah, so um, obviously my website is where you can find everything about me, uh, sexloveliberation.com. Um, I have a podcast too, so you can find all of that information and my blog posts and how to work with me is, is on that website. But my favorite way to connect with people is through Instagram. Um, I love that we get to have these very intimate, uh, windows into people's lives and into the things that they're thinking. I often use my Instagram as kind of like a, a diary where I talk about the things that I'm exploring. And, um, and also I share my, my sexual liberation journey through sexy self portraiture. So I love connecting with people on Instagram. I think it's a, it's one of the best ways for me to actually get to know people. Cause I'm not on Twitter. I, I feel like Twitter is kind of, it's scary to me. <laughs> so, so Instagram feels a little bit more doable. Awesome. Well, I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for this. Yeah, it was so good to like catch up with you, to talk to you. Thank you for having me. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. I couldn't do this without you. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Jamie. Hi, Jamie. Hi. So we are going to do a fun little round of rapid fire questions so I can get to know stuff about you. Are you ready? Awesome. Cool. I'm ready. What is your current guilty pleasure? Oh my goodness. So I've been making these dark chocolate like peanut butter cups and I melt this like cocoa and peanut butter and coconut butter. um, And then I pour them into, I melt it and then I pour it into these peanut butter cups and I freeze it and I have one every single night and they're delicious. Um, so that sounds, <laughs> that sounds amazing. I want that immediately. I, my husband makes fun of me because I am obsessed with the smell of like coconut oil, coconut butter, anything like yes. I will just open. We have a huge like Costco size thing of coconut oil that we use to cook with in the kitchen. And I'm like huffing it. Like, like you think people would do with like paint or something. He's like, I get it. It smells good. 
It's Ugh. the best for even, I use cocoa butter on my hands. Like I'm in Canada. So my hands are like always dry um, with the cold and I'm running. I like, I'm, I'm a runner. So I'm always outside. And so I'm always putting like anything in coconut butter actually really works for your hands. If uh, pro tip for anyone who has really dry hands. <laughs> you know, I believe you. I just feel like I would all day just be like, like smelling myself, like not able to like right. move on with my life. Right. Oh, first world problems. Um, what is your <laughs> favorite thing to eat for breakfast? Oh my goodness. It has to be oatmeal. I mean, I, I know that sounds, oh my gosh, so basic, but, um, I really love oatmeal and adding different things to it. I've just recently started adding, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, turmeric, the powder, that yellow powder. Yeah, turmeric, I think. Turmeric. Turmeric, something like yes. that, yeah. Um, with some like black molasses to it. It's delicious. I may, 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 I'm probably not selling it, but I've heard some good things about turmeric. And so I started adding it to my oatmeal and with a little bit of cinnamon and it's delicious. Yeah, I, I've used um, like not the powder form, the root form of it in like smoothies and juices and stuff. It's supposed to be a really powerful anti-inflammatory. So I've heard. Yeah, so, right. <laughs> so give it a try. <laughs> so the healthy eating blogs tell us. Yes, I love it. <laughs> um, if you had an extra $100 and you had to spend it on something fun that's just for you, how would you spend it? Oh boy. Um, mm. So my guilty pleasure is probably getting my nails done because I was a nail biter like all my life. So I try to keep my nails up. So I think probably my guilty pleasure is getting my nails done like shellac. It works. <laughs> and uh, just taking care of, uh, I don't know, my nails. <laughs> In my, I want to say even fantasy life, because I don't know that mm -hmm. I actually want it, but in my parallel life that another Nicole is living, like yeah. the manicures and the nice nail, like that's a thing. I just, <laughs> I tried, I tried to care for so long and I realized that I don't, but there is a me out there who is really into all of that. And that sounds lovely. So uh, I, you know what? I'm not really into it. It's just, I was a nail biter. And so I find that if my nails are like kept, I just, I'm like, oh, they're too nice. I won't like pick at them because I will pick. So, um, it helps. No, it it's, it's smart. I, I agree with you. We have that really gross stuff, you know, that you put on your nails so that when you bite them, it tastes disgusting. Yes. It's called bite off. Yeah. I had it as a kid. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I got it from my husband. I was like, here you go. You have to use this. Your hands are disgusting. So really, really good. Um, who are some of your favorite people to follow on social media? Oh boy. Um, well, I love, I love Lindsay Hine. Um, she's a runner and a coach and she has a podcast as well. Um, but she's mostly running and I kind of got into her from that. Um, I love following like a bunch of Canadian Olympians. Uh, Natasha Waddick is one of my favorites. Um, mostly runners. It's kind of like, if you look through my Instagram, my, my sister actually said that on the weekend, she's like, our Instagrams are so different. <laughs> Um, but, uh, and also I like rich roll as well. Cause he's always doing like wild things and, um, he's, he's kind of like one of the first people I started listening to in podcasts and whatnot and uh, always kind of inspiring messages and whatnot. I love that stuff. So. Yeah, totally. That's funny. I feel like it would be such a good kind of, I don't know if icebreaker is the right word or get to know you situation to see who other people follow on Instagram. Totally. You can learn a lot about, like I'm thinking now for me, it's like other than, you know, like actual personal friends, right? Friends or family or that kind of right. thing. It's basically like cats, um, yes. long distance hikers, a couple of runners and yes. like vegan desserts. It's <laughs> like basically oh, my right? entire Instagram. <laughs> Can I just pause for a second? There was, um, you know who I really liked and I, you introduced her to me is Hannah Shaw, oh my gosh. the kitten lady. 
that was so and we'll get there but that was the that was probably the episode that I was like oh my gosh this episode is so much this podcast is so much more than just you know what I mean like you I really loved that conversation I really loved um Hannah uh so I've I've become obsessed with her and I'm also also a cat lover so as you are so um it's she's she's another count I love. She's like legit the best person on the internet. I, I, I it was that was one of those situations where, you know, it's always an interesting experience to invite people onto the podcast when there's someone that you aren't, you know, you don't know or you're not being introduced by a friend or where it's like a complete essentially cold pitch, right? Which happens yes. which happens sometimes more often I, I, now. And that was, I figured there's no way she's going to email me back, right? Like yeah. she just, and it was like two hours later, she emailed me back. She booked a spot on the show and I just Aww. basically laid on the floor and hyperventilated for like an hour. <laughs> yeah, she's big. Because then I started crying. And then obviously I went into this like hole of creeping her and all of all of the amazing things she's doing. And I was like, we need to adopt all the cats. And I was like, we need a baby cat thing or whatever she was saying. Like you get a baby um, cart, uh, fence thing for the kittens and I live in like a tiny condo and my husband's like what we're not we have one cat we have room for one cat yeah my husband says we're not allowed to have more cats than people so we're topped out now so (laughs) that's hilarious um okay so the last question what is one of your favorite books or a book that's had a big impact on you that I should probably read Mm, um oh boy I I'm gonna say I loved Chrissy Wellington's A Life Without Limits yeah, I, lo- um, I love that book too. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, right? So I think I think that's probably like my number one. If anyone ever um, asked me for like a running um, kind of you know in- inspirational, motivational book or something that's had an impact on me, it's certainly that one. Like I remember I was training in 2014. That's when I first read the book. Um, I was training for the Ottawa Marathon, and I just was like so obsessed with everything she was saying. Um, she's so badass, and I'm obsessed with her. So, and I really, that book was just so real. And, um, I, and I'm not a triathlon, like I triathlete, I don't do triathlon at all, but I've just like even watching like her, um, I watched like YouTube clips of Chrissy and Kona. It's just incredible. So, uh, I would definitely say that book. Yep. I feel the same way. It was nice to read something in that genre that was by a woman. I feel like a lot of the big totally. kind of like runner and triathlete books are are male books, which I mean, which is fine, right? I love those yeah, too, yeah. but it was really, it was refreshing for me and definitely stood out. Totally. Totally. So you are a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a small and powerful pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season. And I would love for you to share maybe why you decided to support the show. I know you just touched on that about Hannah's episode and, you know, maybe what you love best about being in our little community or the things that we do behind the scenes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think as a consumer of podcasts and I like listen to so many of them, you just over time realize, wow, like there must be a lot that goes into this. Like even me maintaining like a little blog and I write for Salty Running, like this is all stuff that like takes a lot of my time and people consume this information and we love providing it. But um, just like the acknowledgement that there's a lot more behind the scenes. So, um, I mean, you're one of my favorite podcasts and it was actually a friend who is another Patreon, um, supporter, uh, Hey Jesse, um, that she told me, uh, about you. And then I, I, once I started listening to you, I was like, yeah, okay, I'm totally, 
I'm totally going to support Nicole. And I was just loving all the extra resources and goodies you offer to um, Patreon members. And then I was reading just on the Patreon page. I've just kind of um, in the past like six months gotten familiar with that website. There's just so many, so much uh, community engagement that was really, I don't know, it was just, it was neat because I knew that a lot of these people are kind of like-minded um, individuals, um, you know, po- a, a very positive community. So I was, I'm happy to support everything you're doing. And I just hope you continue doing what you're doing. Cause that's always my fear. I'm like, I fall in love with these podcasts. I'm like, they can never leave. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's sweet. And thank you so much for the support. Mm-hmm. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 30 hours of bonus content with new stuff added every month, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight-episode season. I can't tell you how much your support means to me, and I can't wait to get to know you better after you've joined our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can, and no matter what, we're in this together. 